Hey everybody, Magnus here. Just want to tell a little story. Unlike most of my classmates, your ever-cheerful storyteller didn't attend the final day of school in the seventh grade. Essentially what happened was I had somehow become involved in a physical altercation with one of my august peers at our mutual institution of academic achievement. As I recall, my ancestry on my mother's side had been called into question by one particular scoundrel during lunch near the end of the school year. I naturally took offense at the accuser's line of inquiry, and we decided to resolve the conflict through the time-honored means of young children throughout the centuries. To wit, punch a motherfucker. As is sadly typical with these sorts of confrontations, the melee was short-lived. The administrators of that shrine to educational excellence quickly parted the young combatants. It should be noted, though, that my esteemed opponent used his face to block the majority of my punches during the fracas, which history has demonstrated to be a less-than-ideal battle tactic. I and the be-mulleted young hooligan who had sampled my wrath were immediately hauled before the assistant principal for a meeting of minds. This gentleman who also served as the disciplinary enforcement officer of the school, quite understandably called upon us to give account for our actions. Your humble narrator, although a largely rule-abiding young fellow, had visited that very institution on a number of occasions previous, and thus had gained considerable insight into how one might, as the saying goes, game the system. I expressed the utmost shock and confusion as to how this alarming chain of events could have ever begun, much less concluded with me using this fine young chap's face as target practice for my admittedly astonishing right cross, but I conveyed a sense of profound remorse for my adversary's pitiful judgment and appallingly poor taste, and then offered my personal guarantee to never again use the educational facility's cafeteria as a gladiatorial arena. My word is my bond. This appeared to impress the gentleman sitting on the other side of the desk. He factually asserted that violations such as this one would usually be a one-way ticket to a Saturday detention, which I knew from previous experience would be served, ironically enough, in the self-same cafeteria in which my opponent and I had first shared our, shall we say, differences of opinion. But he had devised an even worse punishment for us we would both be suspended for one school day. Then the gentleman added what I felt certain he considered to be his coup de grace. Our suspension would take place on the final day of school, two weeks hence. It should be understood that the final day of school had been set aside for games and other group activities, as all final exams would have been completed by that point. For all practical purposes, the true final day of school would actually be the day prior. From a sense of theatrical obligation, I felt an instinctive compulsion to implore the gentleman to conjure any other punishment other than that which he had suggested. It appeared evident to me that the principal was not at all familiar with the tales of Br'er Rabbit, as he played right into my hands by refusing to compromise on my punishment. On the contrary, he insisted that this would be a character-building exercise for the both of us. I with but the slightest trace of hesitation and reluctance, finally met the principal's eye, solemnly nodded my head in assent and acceptance of his verdict, shook his hand and expressed my profound respect for his visionary methods of disciplinary correction. He smiled, thanked me for the sentiment, and promised that the day would come when I would thank him. 
I immediately thanked him, and our conference was adjourned. And so it was that the sanctity of my maternal lineage had been defended, a young braggart had been taught a lesson in humility, and my summer vacation started a day early. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on, because I got to tell you, cold never bothered me anyway. What I do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. Now, last week, I spent a hell of a long time talking about the first six issues of the Garth Ennis Punisher Max series. I then said something very cryptic and mysterious. I promised that I'd talk about some Spider-Man 2099 comic books this week. Now, some of you weren't sure what that could possibly mean. It was just so oblique. But I'm here to reveal that my subject matter this week will be Spider-Man 2099 comic books. Now, the 2099 line of comics are... They're basically a hypothetical future of the mainstream Marvel Universe. These, these issues may be where the current line of Marvel Comics are headed. But maybe not. Unless you want them to. But, it, but if you don't, don't worry about it because they don't count. Unless you want them to. Anyway. The 2099 launched with basically four titles. You had Spider-Man, Doom... Punisher and Ravage. Ravage, and in case it wasn't obvious, was totally new for the 2099 line, but the rest are all futuristic updates of existing Marvel properties. The line would later go on to be expanded beyond those four introductory titles, and some might say too far beyond those four introductory titles, but hey, that's all a matter of taste. It's also a matter of taste of how good all these comics really are. Again, Ravage 2099 is definitely up for grabs there. What's not up for grabs, what's not a matter of taste, is that Spider-Man 2099 is regarded as one of the very best titles that the 2099 line of comics had to offer. There's a reason for that too. As might become evident in just a bit, Peter David took the basics of the Spider-Man model, but re-envisioned for a futuristic setting. Now, 
the sad truth here is that I haven't been on the ground floor for very many things in comics. I missed the boat on a lot of stuff. 1990s Supergirl book by Peter David, the original Young Justice, also by Peter David, Why the Last Man, the Mark Wade and Barry Kitson three-boot of the Legion of Superheroes, and then some other stuff too. That's why I'm kind of happy to say that I was with the program pretty much right away when it comes to Spider-Man 2099. And understand, this is a bigger deal for me than you might think because then as now, I'm a DC man. So for me to notice anything in the Marvel Universe is big shit. Basically what happened was I got bribed. Every parent bribes their kid somehow. My parents would attend my older brother's Little League games, and I usually got dragged along even though I didn't give a flying fuck about sports, and I, I made no secret of that either. It was common knowledge that taking me to pretty much any kind of sporting event was an exercise in futility. So my parents needed a, a, a dividend to get me to the games. The solution they arrived at was bribery. I had pretty much perfect attendance for all of my brother's baseball games in 1992, and was very well paid, I might add. Basically what they do is they'd load me up with all different kinds of candy and comics. Those things bought my attendance and my silence. I'd snack away on candy and Dr. Pepper while sifting through whatever assortment of comics the nearest gas station had in stock. On one occasion, though, my mom had to go in there to get my loot for me. Now, I'm going to be honest, I don't remember exactly what the circumstances for that were. But if I had to make an educated guess, I'd say that I was going through a phase where I refused to let my mom pump her own gas when I was around. See, I thought it was poor taste. Borderline obscene, really. For a woman to pump her own gas while able-bodied men were in the car, sitting on their butts, and doing nothing. So I just, I thought it was a damn disgrace. So I usually chased her away from the gas pump so that I could handle business there. So usually what my mom would do is run inside the gas station while I pumped the gas and pick up everybody's loot. I must have told her to get my comics while she was in there because ordinarily I wouldn't have touched a Marvel book. Not even with a 10-foot pole. Not even if a naked chick was holding it. So, my hunch is she just grabbed comics at random and just hoped for the best. That, I think, is probably how I came about getting copies of Spider-Man 2099, number 1 and 2. When we arrived at my brother's baseball game later on, I have to say, I thought both comics were fucking amazing. You see... I had a lot of prejudices about Marvel Comics, but those Spider-Man uh, 2099 and uh, number one and number two comics kind of challenged everything I thought I knew. It'd be a while before I realized that most of the stereotypes I had about the Marvel Universe were mostly only true of the X-Men and Avengers-related books. The rest of Marvel's line was generally not the steaming hot mess that those titles were. But... That was still in my future. I hadn't realized all that stuff yet. All I knew was that Spider-Man 2099 challenged what I believed about Marvel by 
being just ridiculously fucking good comics. And that's probably about as good a segue as I could ask for to get into the summaries. This is Spider-Man 2099, number one, two, and three. Writer is Peter David. Penciler is Rick Leonardi. Inker is Al Williamson. Colorist is Steve Bacchelato. Letterer is Rick Parker. Editors are Joey Cavalieri and Sarah Massoff. Editor-in-chief is Tom DeFalco. Cover date is November 1992 for issue number one. Spider-Man 2099, number one, entitled Stanley Presents Spider-Man 2099. New York, 2099. Five teens cruise the skies above the city in their Whisper 3000 hover car. They don't expect any trouble from the local flyboys in public eye. The, cro the crosswinds at their altitude are, are vicious. They're surprised when the flyboys do show up in pursuit of a black and red clad figure, Spider-Man. He evades them, eventually going into free fall, crashing into Officer Estevez as he makes his escape into the crowd below. Back at his apartment, Miguel O'Hara stumbles into his apartment. He's greeted by Lila his holographic digital assistant, who notifies him of six holo messages. The first is from his boss, Tyler Stone at Alchemax, who strongly suggests he give in to the drug he's fighting and come into the office. The next is from his brother Gabe, who, despite his contempt for the corporate raider program Alchemax has Miguel working on, makes an effort to reach out to his brother for support. Miguel cuts the message short, moving on to one from his fiancée, Dana D'Angelo. Her right eyes swollen shut. She says the night she saw him strung out on drugs was one of the scariest of her life, but, but, she's, but now she's even more frightened of him. He seems to have just dropped off the face of the earth. Miguel cuts off the recording and doesn't bother to watch the, three, the other three that she left. Even Lila notes his unusual behavior as not within normal programming parameters. He comes and goes at different hours. His heart rate's up. He hasn't made an entry in his journal for f five days and other things uh, going on as well. Miguel decides to rectify that last point by recording all, that, all that's led up to his present condition, beginning in the laboratories of Alchemax. Miguel O'Hara, one of the uh, corporation's great hopes, a genius given the full university treatment by the corporation itself, had been installed as the project head of a new genetics program. This led to friction with the higher-ranking Aaron Delgado, who saw Miguel as arrogant, spoiled, and lacking any respect for the existing command structure. Miguel certainly had no respect for Delgado, whom he treats like an idiot, but felt entirely justified by the remarkable progress of the project. They'd had remarkable success in altering the genetic structure of test animals, and he'd even found some quality research materials for inspiration. Miguel introduces Aaron to a file on Spider-Man, one of the greats of the turn-of-the-century Age of Heroes. And, with the proportionate strength, speed, and agility of a spider, a perfect example of what the corporate raider program hopes to achieve through genetic engineering. Unfortunately for Miguel, Alchemax is interested in results. Quickly. Tyler Stone makes a trip to the lab in person to introduce the researchers to Mr. Sims, a convict who volunteered for the program in exchange for a commuted 40-year sentence. 
Miguel protests that they are nowhere near ready for human test subjects, but Stone and Sims both insist that he, that he give it his best effort. Miguel starts with the simplest genetic modification he can devise, which would ideally give Mr. Sims augmented strength. He's partially successful. When Miguel opens the transformation chamber, only a horribly disfigured creature remains, but it breaks its bonds effortlessly and nearly chokes Miguel to death before falling dead from shock and disintegrating on the spot. Even so, Stone calls the results very positive. Following that mass, Miguel's prepared to resign. At first, Stone appears to accept Miguel's resignation. He even offers Miguel a goodbye toast of vintage 1994 wine in his office and tells him that any company that calls asking about him will only get the most glowing reviews. He does, however, see a problem with how Miguel will acquire Rapture. You see, Rapture is a, a legal, mind-expanding, hallucinogenic drug sold only through Alchemax. Outrageously expensive, it also bonds to the user's genetic code, making the withdrawal symptoms lethal. Stone had just doped Miguel's wine with Rapture as a parting gift. <clears throat> In a stupor, Miguel stumbles out of Stone's office. By the time he reaches home, his trips has turned nasty. As he enters his apartment, he lashes out at his fiancée, who appears at first to be some sort of monster. Miguel's sorry and explains the situation to her. Even if he chooses not to be a slave for Alchemax, he'll still be a lifelong addict of Rapture. Miguel sees only one chance to escape his fate. He'd saved his genetic structure to use as a sample in the Corporate Raider program. He'd been imprinting his structure onto apes, but if he can survive the process, he might be able to re uh, revert back to his pre-drugged genetic structure. As he seals himself inside uh, the transformation chamber lab that night, Miguel believes he's alone. But in fact, Aaron Delgado had been watching unseen, because this is the 90s and people watch shit unseen from the shadows all the time. <clears throat> Aaron Delgado had been watching all this unseen, and decided to take this chance to rid himself of the arrogant upstart. Wildly changing control settings, Delgado never notices that he sets the machine to merge Miguel's unal unaltered DNA with that of a spider. Overriding all safety warnings, Delgado pushes the machines beyond their normal limit, and they explode violently. Afterward, Delgado is surprised to find that Miguel has survived and is stumbling dazed around the lab. Delgado decides to play off his involvement in the accident, telling Miguel that he's going to pay for damaging so much Alchemax equipment, and notices too late what kind of fanged, clawed creature Miguel O'Hara has become. Spider-Man 2099, number 2, entitled, Nothing Ventured. Back at his apartment, Miguel O'Hara continues the story of his strange transformation for his holographic digital assistant, Lila. Though he'd been drugged, he was so numbed by the experience that it hadn't quite registered. He stared at his hands, his vision way too far out of whack to see the claws that his hands have become. There was a buzzing in his ear, which he still couldn't quite make out as the voice of Aaron Delgado. Fearing, fearing for his life, Delgado pulls a gun on the now monstrous scientist, but Miguel manages to leap effortlessly away from the blast. Miguel is barely able to recover his ability to speak before a stray blast hits a large canister labeled Danger. The resulting explosion punches a large hole through the Alchemax building. 
and sends the two men flying. Miguel manages to catch Aaron by his arm, holding him stories above New York. Miguel holds on as tight as he can, but Aaron resists, claiming the skin is being flayed from his arm. Finally, uh, finally freeing himself, Aaron Delgado falls to his death. Confused and horrified, Miguel finally notices that each finger is tipped in a razor-sharp talon. The startling realization is interrupted by a heavily armed squad of public eye security agents who have Miguel, whose face is covered, in their spotlights. Preferring death to being a freak, Miguel leaps from the building just before the agents open fire. As he falls, Miguel just hopes to die for all of three seconds. Then he regains his senses and grasps onto the side of the building. Miguel then screams for help as he dangles high above the, the uh, street below. Miguel manages to dig in his claws, slowing himself, and then finally comes to a stop when, his, when the talons on his toe dig in as well. He then begins a slow descent to the ground. As more public eye and fire control arrives on the scene, Miguel looks on from a nearby rooftop. Aaron's bumbling attempt at homicide has turned Miguel into a monster, and now he doesn't have the guts to finish the job. With public eyeballs crawling everywhere, there's no chance for escape. Or so it would seem until he hears a strange voice from above. Repent! Repent, all of you! Repent, tyrants of Alchemax! This is screamed by a man dressed as Thor from his personal glider. The man is a Thorite, which is to say a devotee of the Church of Thor, heralding a new day when Thor will return to smite the frost giants of industry. Miguel calls after him and leaps for the so-called sky kite, careful and trying not to rip it to shreds. When the Thorite demands to know who he is, Miguel replies, Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, Spider-Man, take your pick. The name Spider-Man strikes home for the Thorite. Surely the return of one of Thor's legendary allies proves his own return is nigh. The two crash the kite into the ground below. Miguel's sorry about the ruined sky kite, but the Thorite encourages, encourages him to take the f torn fabric to fashion a mask because, hey, Spider-Man has to wear a mask, right? In his office, Tyler Stone has a tense phone conversation with Tiger Wilde, the ruler of Latveria. Wilde shows Stone what remains of his assassin, stating that Alchemax must have declined sorely after he left the corporate raider program. Stone disavows any knowledge of an assassin, but Wilde just cuts him off. Enraged, Stone demands to see Dr. Crane and Venture, but his secretary informs him that Venture is already in the building, inspecting the damaged site. Down in the lab, the elite agent known as Venture surveys the damage. His cybernetic eye can still pick up the thermal imprints left behind by Aaron Delgado and Miguel O'Hara, from their footprints to full-body-shaped imprints where the men hit the floor. Back in his office, Tyler Stone vents his frustration on Dr. Crane. The doctor's flabbergasted at the mission's failure, insisting that the body armor he designed should have been impenetrable. Stone angrily informs the doctor that the armor's occupant was not so fort uh, fortunate and warns him that his future intelligence work with Alchemax had, had better be an improvement over this fiasco. Venture enters the office to deliver his report. Ejecting a small silver disc from a slot in his, hand, uh, in his head, where his left ear used to be, and loading it onto Stone's big screen console, 
Venture demonstrates how the mystery target fell to his belly while Delgado hung over the edge of the building. Once Delgado's fallen and public eye intrudes, the mystery man vaults out of the gaping hole in the laboratory wall and then climbs up the building. Whoever he is, Stone considers the mystery man well worth pursuing. Stone puts Venture in charge of tracking him down, considering the job to be above public eye. Back in his Babylon Tower's apartment, Miguel awakens. He's shocked to find the previous night was not a dream and that his spider claws have torn his sheets to shreds. He orders his digital assistant Lila to darken the room, as his, eye, his eyes are now uh, too light-sensitive to endure sunlight. At that moment, Gabriel O'Hara uh, again calls to check on his big brother. Gabe, having already spoken to a very shaken Dana D'Angelo, insists on coming over. With Gabe on his way, Miguel begins to consider how expensive it'll be to replace his entire wardrobe with unstable molecule fabric. With his new claws, any other material might get torn up to shreds with just a careless gesture. As it is, the only UMF outfit he, that he owns is an old Day of the Dead death's head bodysuit that he, that he used to wear to the festivals. The only good news seems to be that his claws reflexively retract to avoid damaging Miguel's uh, skin. With any luck, Miguel may learn to control his uh, claws deliberately. Gabe O'Hara soo soon arrives and, and immediately tries to interrogate Miguel about Alchemax, Dana, and the rapture to which he's now addicted. Miguel insists he's beaten the rapture, but Gabe knows that it bonds to DNA and nobody beats it. Gabe can appreciate that he feels a certain degree of loyalty to Alchemax because, after all, they discovered Miguel, educated him, shot him up through the corporate ranks, and then gave him free reign to do his research, but he just can't turn a blind eye to all the evil that they do forever. Miguel's eyes are sharper than Gabe thinks, however, especially after the accident. From his mile-high apartment, Miguel's able to recognize a figure at street level as Venture, a psionically en enhanced heat tracker and cyborg whom he recognizes from old files and from his horrific reputation. Venture had managed to follow Miguel's heat trail from the crashed Thorite glider all the way back to his apartment and is going to arrive in moments. Miguel quickly shoves his brother out the door. Venture is tracking the Spider-Man who escaped from the lab, not necessarily Miguel O'Hara, who wasn't even supposed to be in the lab that night. With Venture's ability to track uh, by heat signatures, the only way to save Miguel O'Hara's identity is to somehow give up the Spider-Man's identity. Thinking quickly, Miguel attaches the partially shredded airfoil from the Thorite glider to his UMF's death's head costume. Bursting out the window, Miguel falls for stories before the, fo uh, the foil finally catches an updraft, sending him crashing into Venture on the street below. With Venture knocked down and flat-footed, Miguel tries to find something to say that, he, that is going to shake up the uh, seasoned combatant, but something that doesn't re reveal how terrified Miguel is. The best he can think of is, hi. Spider-Man 2099, number three, entitled, Nothing Gained. Miguel O'Hara continues to relate, to the, uh, relate the strange story of his origin as the Spider-Man of 2099 to his holographic digital assistant, Lila. Miguel had just managed to get the drop on Venture, a cyborg elite sent by Alchemax to track down the mysterious Spider-Man who'd escaped from their laboratory. Before the battle can begin in earnest, a band of Thorites insert themselves between Spider-Man and Venture. Only Miguel knows 
what Venture's capable of, and that's enough for him to be afraid. As Venture effortlessly tosses aside the attacking uh, Thorites, Venture continues threatening Spider-Man. As he lunges at Venture, Spider-Man says he just wants to be left alone. Venture dispatches the inexperienced Miguel as easily as he had the Thorites. With his right arm completely nerve-numbed by Venture's rod, Miguel knows he doesn't stand a chance against Venture. Miguel tries to decide between buying time to heal and then genuinely surrendering when a young Thorite dressed as Balder rushes Venture from behind. His patience gone, Venture kills the, y- the youth on the spot. Pissed off about that, Miguel again rushes the cyborg, this time using his spider powers to dodge Venture's attacks. Miguel tries to come to, uh, come to his senses. So far, Venture's been using his fearsome reputation and incessant talking to keep Miguel distracted, but Miguel needs to carry, to carry out his original plan. Only by backtracking through his own apartment can he be certain the Spider-Man's heat trail can't be associated with Miguel O'Hara. Venture follows after uh, the apparently fleeing Spider-Man, passing Gabriel O'Hara on the way back down Babylon Towers. Spider-Man races up the elevator shaft a split second before Venture rattles it with explosive blasts from his cannon. He's only feet ahead of Venture when he breaks uh, into his own apartment and tells Lila to tell Venture that the horrible man in black went through the window. Spider-Man then leaps out the window just as Venture enters the apartment. Sure enough, Lila tells Venture where to find Spider-Man. Venture pursues Miguel through the city and eventually traps him in a molecularly dense uh, uh, body wrap. Venture then thinks he'll have no trouble bringing Miguel back to Alchemax. However, Miguel manages to cut himself free with his talons and then trash one of Venture's rocket boots. They wrestle with each other as they fall back down to the surface, and they're both surprised when webbing sprays out of Spider-Man's forearm, blinding Venture. They crash into traffic, giving Miguel a brilliant idea. The magnets that keep the maglev carves uh, aloft can also be used to repel Venture's metallic body. Miguel manages to rid Venture of his cannon, but the hunter stays rooted in place with his rod. The two of them slug it out for a while until Miguel manages to immobilize Venture. When Venture's own cannon strikes the cyborg hard from behind, Spider-Man uses the opportunity to drive the electrified rod into the exposed wiring in Venture's foot. Venture collapses into a burning pile of flesh and circuitry. As Miguel finishes relating his tale to Lila, he asks how things could possibly get any worse. Suddenly, there's there's a serious knock at the door. It's Tyler Stone demanding to speak to Miguel about Spider-Man. The end. So, what did I think? Like I said, the first two issues were the first Marvel comics that I ever paid any kind of attention to. And man, oh man, these are some fucking awesome comics. In his day-to-day life, I think it'd be fair to say that Peter Parker is a little bit of a pushover. He, and by that, I guess what I mean is he sometimes lets people just walk all over him. He doesn't really stand up for himself. Now, even if that's not necessarily true of Peter Parker as a character now, it's a big part of his tradition. But Miguel O'Hara is really nothing like that. Uh, he's smart. He knows he's smart. And so he shoots his mouth off to anybody he thinks is lower down the totem pole than he is, which is everybody. Now, there's a strong argument that Miguel needs a lesson or, or, or two in humility. There's really no question about that. But 
At the same time, he's more sympathetic, at least to me, for being willing to stand up for himself. As a matter of fact, there's a strong argument that Miguel O'Hara's had a very big influence on Spider-Man, which is to say Peter Parker. There came a point in Spider-Man's publishing history when Peter was really successful. He'd reached the point in, in his professional life where... I, I don't know. Call it Revenge of the Nerds if you want, but he achieved things. He was a teacher. He was a well-respected researcher and scientist. He was an accomplished photographer, and at least at one point, he was banging a supermodel. It's easy for me to think that someone at Marvel took note of Miguel O'Hara's professional success and realized that Miguel is... He's basically Peter Parker 15 or 20 years later. I can't help but imagine that uh, Peter's eventual success in life wasn't at least somewhat influenced by Miguel. And then there's the organic web shooters. Clearly, Sam Raimi had been picking up a few Spider-Man 2099 comics over the years because just watch the fucking movies. Like I said before, there's a strong sense in which Spider-Man 2099 takes a lot of the core elements of the Spider-Man mythos and gives them a huge futuristic upgrade. So, rather than a radioactive spider bite, Miguel, Miguel obtains spider powers from this really weird, just fucked up type of uh, gene splicing. Different cause, similar effect. Also, and this is kind of a different subject, the future speak isn't really all that distracting in these comics. I mean... I guess to make a comparison, look, I love the Legion of Superheroes and, and all of that stuff, but less really is more when it comes to futuristic slang. Grife and Sprock and all that other weird shit that you see in Legion of Superheroes. It's just, it's a lot to keep up with. Here in Spider-Man 2099, though, the main curse word seems to be the word shock. And it's, obviously that's a real-world word, but the difference here is context. And usage. What I'm saying here is that Spider-Man 2099's Future Speak works for me. I just, I really dig it. Also, most future fiction ages like complete shit. And the reason for that is because technology is a pretty unpredictable thing. There's really no way to know where it might go even five years in the future, much less uh, uh, at this, at the time this came out, a hundred years in the future. So, when you see future technology in fiction, it can be hit and miss as to how accurate it is. But really, the only obvious thing lacking from Spider-Man 2099, at least to me, is something along the lines of the internet. And honestly, who knows? A lot of technology in the 2099 universe could... It might actually use the internet as a backbone. Just because it isn't said so outright doesn't make it impossible. Now, it'd be a mistake to say that I'm a lifelong devotee of Rick Leonardi's art. Honestly, apart from this, some Batgirl, and some other stuff that he's done, I can't really say that I've got just this huge awareness of Rick Leonardi's art. I'm, well, I mean, I, I think he's done some Star Wars stuff. I swear to think that's somewhere in his resume, but I, honestly, I, I can't say. And really, it's, that's all kind of not the point anyway. My point is, I truly can't 
picture Spider-Man 2099 being drawn by anybody else. There's just something about Rick Leonardi's art that just... I don't know. It fits Spider-Man 2099. I guess, to make a comparison, when I think about the DC Universe in the future era, I think about Batman Beyond and the Bruce Timm style. Not necessarily for present day stuff, but that future era? Yeah, all Bruce Tim, all the time. Same thing here. Rick Leonardi's work is so strong that if I ever think about the futuristic Marvel Universe, it pretty much looks like Rick Leonardi's art. I'm really not sure if that's significant of anything or not, but it's how I feel. Anyway, his work just fits the futuristic world that Miguel O'Hara lives in. Leonardi's art is every bit as indispensable to the story for me as Peter David's writing. And honestly, that's not something that I can say about just every penciler that comes down the line, so... So, <clears throat> as with uh, the Punisher Max series, I am gonna come back to Spider-Man 2099. I don't know when. I honestly have no idea when I'm gonna have the chance to do that, but... What I can tell you is that the day will come. And, you know, I'm thinking it's probably going to be... Oh, gee. I, I, I would be surprised if I even managed to do it again by the end of 2015. I would be shocked if it happens in 2015. But my point is, is it's, it's going to come. All right? I'm going to talk more about uh, Spider-Man 2099. It's just there are so many other things that I want to do. But this is one of those series that I think... It's well regarded, I just don't think it's especially well known. And this is one of those things that I think people do kind of need to be aware of. I want to see Spider-Man 2099, I don't know, just expand its audience a little bit. Because honestly, my reading of it is that this is the greatest Spider-Man title that nobody's, nobody really knows about anymore. So I'd like to do my part to fix that. So that's pretty much it. So. Uh, just sit tight. Be right back after these messages. Really glad I decided to pony up and take my wife to Italy for her birthday. The food, the sights, the atmosphere, it's all just so perfect. <sighs> Too bad I had to ask if there was a comic book shop located at the Vatican. Uh, maybe it wasn't the brightest thing to do on her birthday, but granted, I'm certain I've done things way more foolish than that. Good afternoon. Gah! Where did you come from and who the heck are you? My name is Dufo de Manzo. And where I come from is none of your concern. What is of your concern is that I have an offer to make of you. An offer that you should not refuse. Uh, okay. What is it? I have listened to your podcasts, and it just so happens that I am in the podcasting business myself. Someday I will ask a favor of you, one that I hope you will repay to me in good faith. 
When you do so, you will become a part of my family, and your show will prosper along with it. Oh, that sounds great. What do I need to do? You will know when the time is right. Until then, I wish you and your lovely wife the happiest of times in my fair country. Uh, oh, okay, cool. Some time has passed. And that does it for another episode of Just One of the Guys. Thanks everyone for listening, and I'll catch you all next week. Bravo. Bravo. God! Bravo. How, how the hell did you find me, and how did you get in my house? Do not worry yourself with such trivial matters. I have seen your work with this podcast, and I have come to accept the favor that is owed to me. Uh, but you never said what you wanted from me. That is true, so let me restate it now. Wait, what? I have started up a brand new podcasting venture entitled Two True Freaks. I am setting them up with their own website, twotruefreaks.com. And I am gathering up podcasts such as yours that have gained my favor to become a part of the Two True Freaks podcast network. I will do the honor of putting the Just One of the Guys on the Two True Freaks network. And in return, our debt will be settled. Oh, okay. Hey, wait, what debt? Do you accept my offer? Uh, sure. I mean, does this mean I'll get paid for the show finally? No. Oh, okay. Well, does it mean I'll get some cannoli? Of course. The Demanzo family originated cannoli. In fact, we are known the world over for our stuffing of creamy fillings in the tubes. Come check out Just One of the Guys every Friday at 2TrueFreaks.com. Yeah, 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 play it. Come on, play it loud. Play it loud. And now it's time to sit back and enjoy the 2 True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Illogic. Foolish emotions. Constant irritant. Then transpire out! Freak! Two! Well, I'm in the circus. <laughs> right next to the dog faced boy. True! I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Oh, it's a super prize package worth nine thousand three hundred and eighty dollars. Money. This isn't the biggest bag over the head punch in the face I ever got. God damn it! Ow! Go away, And now, together by live simulation via the internet, your hosts. Scott Gardner. He killed a police officer for Christ's sake. Thank God damn lucky he didn't kill him. And Chris Honeywell. Keep away! Keep away from me! You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. Looking at me? Yeah, because she thought you're some kind of freak. Now come on, let's go. She likes me, eh? No way. Shut up, you freak! 
TrueFreaks.com My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a Back to the Men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to f- mine, or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have f- mine, you have f- yours. You might want to f- yours only if you do have it set to automatically because f- you don't want it to automatically because f- the f- thing never works right. Because what will happen is it will be used to you at a particular time, and then if you go out of that, it scrambles to uh, a and it doesn't fast enough. So it's better to just set it up. Oh, okay. It, it really doesn't work well. So I checked. Right. Uh, I checked my uh, what's mm-hmm. it called? my. It definitely built built me for the hotel for all three of us. Join back to the bins every week for goodness. Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers. this again i'm back now and got just a little bit of feedback that i need to go through here so what happened was just a while ago i actually tried recording all of this uh feedback that we're about to talk about i want to say probably spent i don't know like it had to have been 30 maybe 40 minutes just sorting through all of this stuff and then, after it was all over, I looked down and noticed that my headset wasn't even plugged in. Yeah, so uh, that's a recording fail right there. So, <clears throat> but anyway, uh, to get into it this time, uh, the first little bit of feedback that I want to get into, this comes from my old friend, Fanboy Miss Prime, dated May the 14th, the subject line of which is... The Big Book of the 70s. And Fanboy Miss Prime writes, Greetings, Magnus. I found the episode to be fun and amusing. And on movies that I love and can watch at any time, I have Transformers the movie. The original, mind you. I think I've mentioned my feelings on the live-action ones before. And I'm just going to put... Prime's email on pause here and say, alright, look, dude, seriously, do not take this as me bashing on you or insulting you or anything like that, because I would never do that. Never in a million years ever would I do that, alright? But it's just, I guess I don't understand why it is that people look down their noses at the Michael Bay Transformers movies. You know? I mean, I just, I don't get it, is what I'm saying. And 
and and like the reason for that is because the original TV show, the cartoon show, was basically designed to market a toy line, right? Now, yeah, a lot of cool things came out of that. You know, cool episodes of of the show and everything came out of that. But ultimately, the the cartoon show and the comic book and everything else was ultimately designed to sell those toys. And so, I guess because of that, I mean, it's already sort of, I don't know, I mean, it, 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 there's already so, such an obvious and prominent commercial element to it to begin with. I don't understand where anything that Michael Bay did is somehow out of order. You know, I just, I don't get that. You know, that doesn't scan for me. You know, and there's that, but... The other thing, and again, please don't take this as me, you know, bashing on you or anything, but, I mean, look, I've got a lot of nostalgia and memories and all this other shit tied up with the uh, animated Transformers movie, the one from 1986, and I I guess I could say that, you know, I enjoy it about as much as the next guy, but... Honestly, I mean, after Optimus Prime dies in that film, pretty much I can take or leave it, you know? And so, I mean, I'm not saying it's not good. In fact, actually, I'm saying the opposite. is actually, it is good. It's really good. But, I mean, to me, it just... I guess maybe the problem is it peaks a little bit too soon. And and I realize, you know, there's there's a story here that's that's being played out. The Autobots are on the run. They don't, I mean, they've lost uh, Cybertron, you know, the Decepticons own it now, and and so basically the uh, the Autobots have been pushed back to various moon bases and, you know, various uh, hideaways and whatnot on Earth. <clears throat> and then, you know, the Decepticons make their big move, and far from pushing back, the, the Autobots take a lot of uh, heavy casualties, not least of which being Optimus Prime himself, and then they spend a goodly bit of the uh, of the film's runtime just basically on the run, and they're aimless, they're drifting, they're leaderless, and ultimately it's up to Rodimus Prime. That's such a stupid name, but anyway, it's up to Rodimus Prime to save the day, take over as the Autobots' new leader. Because the young, inexperienced hothead, that's the guy you want running the show. I don't know. I mean, look, like I say, it's a good movie. Unicron is a great villain. And he has a cool little, you know, bit of, you know, theme music and everything else. It's just... I guess I I don't understand, number one. I, I guess I just... I don't get the whole obsession that people have with that movie. I mean, like I said, the bit where Optimus Prime dies, man, that is a real punch in the balls, right? And I get that. And it was a punch in the balls to me as a kid. You know, I'm sitting here watching that, and I think basically like everyone else in our generation, I didn't get to see it in theaters. I had to wait for it to come out on video. And... The moment that Prime dies... Look, somehow I just missed that spoiler. I had no idea that was coming. 
And so when it finally happened, I mean, dude, you talk about getting caught off guard, you know? And, but that's like, that happens in like, what, like the first, I don't know, like 20, maybe 30 minutes of the film. And then pretty much from there on in, you're kind of left marking time until the big showdown with Unicron. And you know that's coming. And so, I mean, look, like I say, it, it it's it's a fun movie. It's good. I enjoy it. Got nothing against it. But, I mean, the way people talk about it, dude, it's like you think it's fucking Citizen Kane or something like that. You know? Although even I, I think even Citizen Kane's actually really fucking overrated. But, you know, whatever. By the way, your hate mail can be sent to trentusmagnus at gmail.com. That's trentusmagnus at gmail.com. T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S, all one word, at gmail.com. Because I'm sure some people are getting kind of angry about that. I just, I don't see it. All right, with Citizen Kane. I think that movie is the most just overrated. It's good, but it's the most overrated thing and whatever. I, You know, you have to contextualize it. There's never been a movie like that before. Fucking blah, blah, blah. I don't give a damn. All right? I just, I don't see it. I don't see what's a damn good about Citizen Kane. Like Casablanca, I see what's good about that. You know? Or a lot of the other classics, I see what's good about. Like the Philadelphia story, I see what's good about that. Citizen Kane? Eh, it's just bullshit posturing. Anyway, but to bring it all back, though, the live-action movies, I mean, to me, it just kind of feels like they're sort of of a piece with the animated show, you know? It's not like that was a deep, nuanced, layered character study or anything like that. It was, it was, it was a toy commercial, and the movies are toy commercials, they're video game commercials. I mean, whatever fucking licensing is tied up with those movies, that's ultimately what those movies exist to promote. And I don't see how the live-action ones are any better or any worse in that regard than that which has come before. As a matter of fact, some of the things that I've heard about what happened to the Transformers franchise between 1986 and, I guess, 2006 or 2007 or whenever the first Michael Bay Transformers movie came out, the Bay movies have, are a definite step up from what I can tell. So, anyway, so like I say, Prime, dude, don't take this as me bashing on you. Hell, don't even take this as me bashing on Transformers. I like Transformers. It's just, number one, I'm not the core fan that other people seem to be. And number two, I really don't understand the hostility towards Michael Bay. I mean, you know, if ever there was a, a you know, there was a movie series, a movie franchise that existed to play to all of Michael Bay's uh, strengths as a filmmaker Transformers is basically it you know and so there you have it now to get back into Prime's email though he writes and yes it is still being worked on my DC presents cartoon ideas now I figured out what to do with Firestorm and let me just put this uh, email back on pause and say that for those of you who don't know what Prime is talking about here basically <clears throat> He came up with an idea for an animated TV show uh, along the lines of The Brave and the Bold, but my memory is that this is basically intended to cater to Superman as opposed to Batman. And so, you know, what that might be like and all these other things. So, uh, you know, he's been, you know, teasing, you know, little bits and pieces of it here. But, you know, the, the payoff, I think, is that he's going to send me a just kind of a detailed sort of rundown of what it is that he has in mind and why he wants 
uh, or rather what he wants um, his uh, DC Presents cartoon idea, you know, basically to be, like the big high concept of it and all that stuff. So anyway, just want to bring all the rest of you up to speed on that and just kind of tell you tell you what that's all about. So anyway, get back into his email. He writes, sorry this email is so short, but didn't really have much to say or any other things to discuss. And then that's where the end of the that's the end of the email right there. So and let me just say, uh, Prime, like I said, number one, don't take any of my comments personally, all right? Because none of it's meant to be an attack on you in any way, or your opinions, or your fandom, or, or anything like that. I'm just saying that there are certain things here that just don't scan for me. And the whole thing about Michael Bay and the Transformers movies—that's kind of one of them. But anyway, but like I said. Seriously, just, you know, don't take any of that the wrong way, you know? So, um, the other thing is, though, <clears throat> you know, dude, I'm just happy that, you, you you know, you're enjoying the show and you're sending me feedback. So, you know, I don't want you to feel like you have to apologize for anything. So, especially since, you know, like I say, I mean, uh, kind of feels like I should ap- apologize to you because now I'm starting to wonder that maybe I was a little bit harsh and, you know, what I said about the Transformers stuff. But, man, fuck it. Like I said, no offense was intended, so I'm hope you I'm hoping you didn't take any. So, and but if you did, I apologize. So, anyway, so that's the uh, sort of first email here. <clears throat> Next up, this is an email that uh, came through from Tom Panarese, dated May the 28th. The subject line of which is episode 42, shooting the shit with Scott Rifen. Now, before I even get into the email, let me just say that uh, uh, Tom. That is Tom Panarese. Um, for those of you who don't know, he's the host of actually several podcasts. Uh, there's In Country, which is all about the the Marvel comic book series, The Nom, and uh, he's you know he's got that going. And the other podcast that he does is called Taking Flight, which is a uh, a kind of you could I guess in in a weird kind of way you could sort of compare it to uh, from crisis to crisis a superman podcast or um or maybe a better one is you know from batgirl to oracle a barbara gordon podcast done by stella and uh, both of those are excellent by the way and so you could kind of compare it to that this is the equivalent type of thing but for dick grayson and so um, but honestly, the you know, and Tom, no offense when I say this, but my favorite of the bunch is without a doubt his uh, podcast, Pop Culture Affidavit. Actually, as a matter of fact, that is not just a podcast; it's also um, his blog. He calls that uh, the name of that is uh, he's got a tie-in blog with it. That's also uh, Pop Culture Affidavit, and so um, so you can find uh, Pop Culture Affidavit, the blog at popcultureaffidavit.com and you can find the podcast at uh, popcultureaffidavit.podomatic.com and so uh, and I guess the the best way to describe it is maybe to use maybe it's just to use uh, uh, Tom's own description of it and say it's just a uh, it's just a Okay, yeah, here, actually, this is maybe, this is the best way to put it. Uh, Pop Culture Affidavit is the official podcast for Pop Culture Affidavit, a blog that looks at all things random in popular culture. 
Once a month, Tom will talk about movies, music, comics, or whatever has crossed his path. And you can check out show notes and weekly blog entries at http blah 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 popcultureaffidavit.com and send feedback or comments to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Uh, and guys, I got to tell you, uh, the podcast, Pop Culture Affidavit, and the blog, don't get me wrong, but you know, the uh, podcast, because that's what we're talking about here. Dude, that is the real deal. Um, this show is fucking awesome. And just to kind of give you an idea of some of the things that we're, uh, you know, that, that uh, Tom has talked about on his show, um, one of my favorite episodes, in fact, this is, uh, if I can even find it here, I'm not sure if I even can, but um, he's got, remember, this is episode 10, Remembering Bayside High, which if the name doesn't give it away, <clears throat> this is basically a uh, sort of look back at Saved by the Bell, the TV show Saved by the Bell. And then there's episode 11, the Columbia House 13, wherein Tom talks about the uh, 13 CDs that he ordered from Columbia House when back in the 90s, you know, CD clubs and music clubs and mu- movie clubs like Columbia House were, you know, the big thing. And I and honestly, I was never actually a Columbia House member. I was a uh, I was a member of uh, BMG, and so, but you know, I'd like to think you know I can still you know relate to this and come at this you know from the angle that you know this is just kind of one of those generational sort of touchstones and experiences that I think a lot of us had. And uh, anyway, so uh, he's got an episode about that. Um, the uh, Another one is episode 14, entitled Love is a Game. Easy to start, hard to finish. Which is, it's basically a look back at the uh, the films uh, called Singles. The Cameron Crowe film, Singles. And uh, basically it starred uh, Campbell Scott, Kira Sedgwick, Bridget Fonda, and Matt Dillon. And it was basically, uh, it was shot in like 19, I think 1990? No, no, 1991. Now that I th- it would have had to have been 1991, and it was shot in uh, Seattle, and it had a lot of local bands and things like that in it. That you know, kind of just peppered the landscape, and of course, the sort of historical irony here is that you know when he shot the movie, these were just local bands that just peppered the landscape and kind of gave the movie a little bit of color and all that stuff, but. When the that's when the movie was shot. When the movie was released, those local bands were not local bands anymore. They were Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains. Uh, let me think. Who else was in it? Soundgarden, or at least Chris Cornell, and anyway, and some others. And so you know, it's kind of funny that the music aspect was part of the film, basically to kind of serve as a backdrop. And that's what Crow intended it to be, but it kind of shifted and mutated by the time the movie came out where the plot and the characters are, they're basically a backdrop for the music. And it's sort of weird that, you know, it's just, it's one of those kind of weird moments in culture where the artist and the audience are sort of talking past one another. You know, that basically Crow, Cameron Crowe wanted to make a movie 
about these characters and these ideas and that's what he gave to the public but what they took from it was the music and so you know there are not I don't I, basically what I'm I guess what I'm saying is I don't know if that movie was received the way he intended it to be you know so anyway but this isn't about singles so whatever I'll just save that for another time Anyway, so, you know, just on and on and on. I mean, he's got um, he's got just several episodes. And honestly, every time a, a new one, he uh, releases a new episode, that's the first thing I listen to. I just fucking, I love this, this show, Pop Culture Affidavit. I just love this show. I mean, to me, it's, uh, I, I put Pop Culture Affidavit and Dinner for Geeks to me, I put them in the same breath. You know, to me, they're on the same level. To me, you know, as far as quality, and so it's always a treat when both of them come out. So anyway, <clears throat> but uh, wow, wow, I've spent all this time introducing Tom, and I haven't even really talked about what he has to say. So, but anyway, uh, again, this email comes from Tom Panarese, dated May the 28th. Uh, subject line of the email reads: Episode 42. Shooting the shit with Scott Rifen, and Tom writes, Your Excellency, I'm almost caught up on the show and just finished listening to you and Scott Rifen shooting the shit and wanted to write in and heap praise upon thee. Seriously, you were speaking my language almost the entire time, especially during your discussion about music. I'm not a fan of the 1980s quote-unquote hair metal, but when you talked about having at least one band that becomes yours at one point... I actually said yes out loud. Thankfully, nobody was in the room, but as a fellow geek, I completely understand the emotional investment that we all have in whatever we're fanatics about. And why we get so disappointed and or pissed off when things go awry. Anyway, great job as always. Signed, Tom. So, first up, Tom, thank you so much for writing in. I love getting feedback from you so thank you very much i appreciate you taking the time to write the second thing is you know i didn't want to derail things too much when i was talking to scott rifen and we he and i were going back and forth about music and everything and you know let's face it he and i are kind of i think we're he and i are far enough apart where i don't know if we could say that we're different generations but there is a, a fairly considerable age difference there to where I think I think you could fairly well say that my taste in music is not necessarily his. And it's not a good thing, it's not a bad thing, it's just a true thing, right? But at the same time there was there were a lot of different directions that conversation could have gone in and it just didn't feel like I had time to talk to him about every single aspect of of I guess music fandom. You know, because the minute you hear the word fandom, I've noticed that most people, well, specifically comic book fans, geeks, they want to compare music fandom with comic book fandom. And honestly, nothing, nothing could be further from the truth, you know? And what I mean by that is, you know, Superman is my guy. I'm going to love Superman for the rest of my life, probably. You know, the way that things are going right now. I mean, I'm 
at the time that I record this, I am 33 years old, and I honestly cannot remember a single time in my life, not once, ever, when I wasn't not just a Superman fan, a Superman junkie, all right? I just don't remember, I don't remember a time when, I don't, I, I don't remember being introduced to Superman is what I'm saying, right? That's how far back my fandom goes. I just don't remember it. I truly do believe, or at least I wouldn't be surprised, to find out that I was, I basically came out of the birth canal with, you know, Superman 2, uh, or Superman the movie, I should say, playing on, you know, the, uh, the TV right as I, you know, came out of the tube, you know, so it just, it, it wouldn't surprise me, so it's just, he's one of those characters, it's always been there, my, you know, my love of Superman, it's, it's just always been there, it's always been with me, it's always been a part of me, and so that cannot always be said of music and bands and everything, and I didn't talk a whole lot about Pearl Jam uh, during my episode with uh, Scott Rifen, I did bring up Led Zeppelin, but we didn't really get too far into you know uh, you know other things that I could have mentioned. But really, Led Zeppelin and Pearl Jam, you know, there was a time when I would have said that they're both my favorite band. And to me, I never saw a favorite as necessarily being mutually exclusive. That you can only have one, you know. And, you know, because teenagers can, I guess they can get by with such intellectual dissonance. But the way that I rationalized it was that Led Zeppelin and Pearl Jam were so different from one another that it was very easy for me to compartmentalize both of them and say that they're both my favorite. I mean, Led Zeppelin, they were, they were the rock, the mythical rock gods of yore, Right. Whereas Pearl Jam, they were just the kind of modern-day everyman, you know? This could be you, you know? And, you know, their styles of music were completely different. The, their lyrical subjects were completely different. The musicianship, all of it. And so it was always very easy for me to compartmentalize the two and just say they're, they're both my favorite, you know? Because I, li- I, I loved different things about them. And... The simple fact of the matter is that if you love any rock band for any period of time, you eventually start getting to, I don't know, a sort of uneasy relationship with them. And this includes both Led Zeppelin and Pearl Jam. To wit, I love Led Zeppelin, but Robert Plant is a complete asshole, right? I love the guy to death. I really do. He co- he either wrote or co-wrote, in my opinion, some of the gr- the greatest rock songs there's ever been. But as a person, the guy's just a dick. All right, there's no nice way to say it. Prosecutions Exhibit A. <clears throat> Led Zeppelin performed at the uh, O2 Arena. In December of, of uh, 2007, and there was a lot of speculation going on at the time that this was basically the precursor to a full-scale Led Zeppelin reunion. And guys, you have to understand that has never happened before, right? They called it a day. 
the band Led Zeppelin they broke up in 1980 when when their drummer John Bonham passed away and that was it that was the end of the show and they never really reunited after that not for like a tour or anything or a new album or anything like that now they did have sort of you know one-off reunions with each other but really the closest Led Zeppelin ever came to reuniting was in uh, the early to mid or actually I should say the uh, mid to late 90s whenever uh, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant they did an episode of MTV Unplugged which was incredibly successful so they went on tour which was incredibly successful so they recorded a new album together their first in I think 20 years at that point they recorded a new album which was not successful and then they went out on tour to support it which at least artistically was not successful and honestly the album that they were supporting it was just not very good you know it just and and the thing is it has so much potential to it but the production of it was just bad it was a little it was trying way too hard to be early 90s grunge in 1998 with that kind of Nirvana, stripped-down type of minimalist production and all that stuff, it just it just did not work for me at all. And honestly, you know, in 1995, they kind of had their nostalgia tour, but in 1998, you kind of want to see them do something new now. Okay, it's like, good, you got the Led Zeppelin stuff out of your system. You can still play Led Zeppelin songs at your concerts, but you don't need to have like a 99% led zeppelin dominated set but they did you know and then in the ensuing years you know it became clear that the whole thing just kind of fell apart because well originally it was because we thought that their their new album just you know on an artistic level it just was kind of weak sauce and then from a sales standpoint it just was not very successful at all I'm actually starting to think it was because Robert Plant is just a colossal prick, but, you know, who? it's one of those things we'll never know the full truth about, so it's almost like, why speculate about it? Either way, though, show's over, and so that was it. And, and at least until 2007, anyway, and then they actually had a full scale, pulled out all the stops, reunion show and understand except for the that page and plant reunion stuff in the 1990s they'd never done a uh, like a one-off reunion show that they could be proud of i mean they did live aid back in 1985 and if you've ever seen that video on youtube you know what a fucking disaster it was they reunited for the atlantic records uh, 40th anniversary in 1988 and basically, Robert Plant was a complete dickhead backstage, which, you know, let's face it, that kind of screwed everybody up, you know, once they finally did go on stage. I mean, no, you know, nobody was on their A game at that point. And just on and on and on, you know, and now here we are, get to 2007, it's like, okay, finally, we can have a one-off reunion show that everybody can be proud of, you know, and... And honestly, for a change, it was actually really good. I mean, like, they changed the tunings of some of the songs. They were in basically a a lower key so that Robert Plant can still, you know, hit the notes that he needs to hit. But basically, you know, they're playing the songs. And a lot of people, myself included, by the way, 
expected this to be a basically the beginning of the Led Zeppelin reunion world tour, right? And I, I would even go so far as to say that's probably what was intended to happen. But what ended up happening was that 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 uh, Alice and Krauss Robert Plant album Raising Sand it became a huge fucking success in ways that I don't think anybody was expecting and so you know there was that there was that going on and then you know I mean basically what I, and I guess here's the point my point is that you know Robert Plant used the Led Zeppelin reunion show basically to hype up his his new solo CD once he got the attention that he needed and the Grammy nominations and then the actual awards he fucking never looked back right all of this was just a means to an end for him to promote his fucking tour and that was it and and, I, and as I remember, it was like right on the heels of the reunion show in uh, December of 2007. It was like a couple of days later. He announced his new, um, he announced his uh, his uh, itinerary for the United States, his touring itinerary. When nobody gave two fucks about Robert Plant touring with Alison Krauss. What they wanted to hear about was Robert Plant touring with Led Zeppelin. And it was all... It, Maybe I was wrong to take it this way, but it just kind of felt like this was him giving us the middle finger, you know, anyway. And so ever since then, I've been kind of done with Robert Plant. I mean, I look, like I said, I respect him as a songwriter. He's written some of the best songs of the rock and, you know, uh, some of the best rock songs of the 20th century. But as a person, he's a fucking dick, you know, and that's just the way I feel about it, you know. And same thing in different ways. Kind, it sort of applies to uh, Pearl Jam, right? Now, uh, my fandom of Pearl Jam actually ended a little. Well, I, I don't know, ended, but it got pretty fucking uncomfortable a lot earlier. Actually, I guess not. Actually, it was about a year earlier. Now that I think about it. But anyway, uh, what happened was, um, it was. I want to say it was the their. Uh, their year 2000 summer tour of uh, Europe. You know, if I had to put a thumbtack in the map and say, yep, that's where it started, then, yeah, that's where I'd do it. You know, when Pearl Jam went, uh, started their tour of uh, Europe in the summer of 2000, that really was the beginning of the end for me, you know? And what happened was, for the first time in their history, they actually... I think out and out endorsed, and I don't mean endorsed. I mean they—they they were just borderline sycophantic of and their support of one particular candidate for the United States presidency, right? And yeah, you know, back in 1992, they'd been kind of supporters of Bill Clinton, but you know, that was—it was just sort of a brief thing, you know, and they, it wasn't a big deal. You know, but like in the summer of 2000, I mean, dude, they were very, very vocal about their support of Ralph Nader, right? Which then is now, I don't, I, I, I don't feel like I need some fucking millionaire, spoiled brat celebrity 
telling me who I need to vote for and the issues I, sh I should support. Because, you know what? Fuck you. You know, I can make up my own mind. I don't need somebody else to do it for me. And this isn't uh, necessarily a partisan thing either, because I don't like it when, no, I, you know, no matter which, which side of the aisle they're coming from, conservative or liberal, I, I don't care. I don't want to hear it, you know? I don't need someone else telling me what I need to do with my life. Anyway, and so... I was just really uncomfortable with that from the get-go. I mean, yeah, they'd always been, I guess, vaguely uh, political before and vaguely activist before, but this was the first time they went full-bore fucking partisan. The first that I can remember, anyway. And I was just really uncomfortable with that. And so... The creme de la creme, though, the coup de grace, the moment that... Honestly, it fuck it changed everything. Came when it was an episode of uh, VH1 Storytellers, and somebody asked Eddie Vedder, "How does he, you know, feel, or what does he think about people in his audience, his fans that come, that basically come from the other direction? All right, they're on the other side of the aisle from him, politically speaking." You know, they they are his fans, too. So, how does he feel about that? And his response was... Fuck them. Quote, unquote. That's what he said, right? Now, yeah, he kind of nuanced the answer, and then he tried to walk it back a little bit, but that was... You know, that was his first response. Fuck them. You know? Alright, well... Fuck you. You know, Mr. Fucking High School Dropout. All right, fine. Then, tell you what, ever since then, what I've done is, you know, what little new Pearl Jam stuff interests me. And honestly, people, there really isn't much. I mean, just, like, musically, their album, Binaural, <clears throat> to me, I think that marked their decline, you know? That's when Pearl Jam went from being you know, a, 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 I think a pretty interesting rock band that still had a lot of things to offer. That changed. And they developed this weird, just kind of obsession with these mid-tempo sort of rock songs, you know? And not even like that kind of dirty rock sound that they, that they had way back in the day that they're probably most famous for. I mean, it was just the sludgy... Not quite punk, but not quite pop. It's not. It's just this kind of just bland, mid-tempo, just fucking mess. And don't get me wrong, there are good songs on there, right? Um, Break or Fall is a good song. Thin Air, Insignificance of the Girl, sl um, a Slide of Hand, Parting Ways. I mean, there are some good songs on there, you know. But it's just, by and large, it it, it felt like they'd kind of lost the point, you know? And so, <clears throat> just on, a, a, uh, on, an, on an artistic front, they were starting to lose me, you know? But then on a personal front, you know? I mean, like the things that they said in public, you know? And then people of my political persuasion being told, hey, fuck off, 
We don't want you. You know? All of that combined basically made me decide, you know what? Fuck me. <laughs> no, dude. Fuck you. Alright? Fuck you. Alright? It's just... Anyway, look, I mean, either you see a problem with someone telling theoretically half of their fan base to fuck off, or you don't. And if you don't, dude, I got... There's nothing I can say to you or for you. So, anyway. And there you go. And so what I just I decided at that moment, you know what? Whatever future Pearl Jam releases there, there may be that come down the pipeline that interest me, I'm going to pirate them. All of them. Everything that interests me, I'm going to make sure that they don't profit from me buying it you know it's not you know it's just i don't want them to have any kind of you know profit from actually you know what it's it's not even that i don't want them to have it i want them to not have it all right i will never financially support anything they they do ever again and if you feel the same way as i do you're welcome to join if not no hard feelings feel free to buy any any of their bullshit that you want it's fine it's just, just that's just me. That's how I feel about it, right? I'm sick and tired of these high school and college dropouts, these semi-literate, semi-conscious, semi-sober, pampered, spoiled fucking brats telling everybody else who they should vote for, the issues they should care about, the causes they should support. I'm just I'm fucking done. I'm done with it. All right, and that's pretty much where I'm coming at it now when it comes to Pearl Jam. And obviously, everything I've said up to now is fucking way too long to have included in the uh, Shoot the Shit episode with uh, Scott Rife in episode 42. Right? There's just no way it would have killed, you know, the entire conversation. And anyway, and who's to say that Rife and he would have even agreed with me? I don't know. It's just it felt like. You know, it's way too big on Matzo Ball to just roll out there and just expect him to do something with it, right? And so, you know, I just kept my mouth shut about all that. But honestly, and this is my point, this is the thing that separates music fandom from comic book fandom. Because Superman is a fictional character, all right? And so I have certain visions of Superman you know, the, the pre-crisis Superman, which is to say the Silver and Bronze Age Superman, the Burn Age Superman, to some degree or another, the Christopher Reeve Superman, the John Hames Newton Superboy, Dean Kane Superman, uh, Tom Welling Superman in uh, Smallville. Um, just on and on and on. There's so much there. I, and I've got so many, I guess, different facets of Superman. Those are just a few. And those are the things that I can always look back on and cherish and everything, and that's fine. But, you know, you don't really get that with with rock bands, you know, because they're people, they say stupid things, they release bad albums once in a while, you know, just on and on and on. And, you know, it's, on the one hand, you know, it's almost like it's not worth getting angry over. But on the other hand, you know what, I mean, you know, there's got to be some kind of principle in society, right? As a person, you have got to live, you've got to rise and fall on certain principles. There are certain things, certain truths, certain ideals that you cling to and you have got to believe in, right? 
and when someone else comes along and pisses all over your principles, I'm sorry, I don't feel like you're out of line in being offended by that and not wanting to have anything to do with people that that basically, you know, rip apart your entire sensibility of, you know, of the world and your country and all these other things. I mean, you know, I'm sorry, what fucking right do they have to do that? I'm sorry, I don't think they do, right? And I'm not trying to be, you know, uh, partisan about this because honestly, I feel not... I feel angry whenever my someone on my side of the aisle does it, but more from the angle that, you know, I already agree with you, and so I don't need to hear this, right? Whereas when they're coming from the other point of view, it's, I disagree with you. I think you're wrong. I think history shows that you're wrong. And you know what? I still don't want to hear this. So, you know, it's not, you know, I would support one but not the other. Although even if I did, that would still be my fucking right. But, you know, it's just I don't think it it's ever a good idea. You know, to do that, and so, you know, when somebody gets on, gets on national fucking television and tells people of my political persuasion to go piss up a rope, I mean, you know, I'm sorry, but I feel like I'm within my rights to be offended by that, you know. And so, henceforth, if there's ever anything that Pearl Jam releases that catches my interest, I'm going to pirate it rather than do anything to financially support it. Fucking, I'm not going to do it. So, and like I said, none of that would fit into my uh, conversation that I had with uh, Scott Rifen back in episode 42. So, anyway, but Tom, I'm sure you didn't mean to touch off a nuclear fucking explosion here. So, you know, hope I haven't offended you. But, you know, I, I just, this is my, I guess this is really my way of saying that, you know, uh, whenever you wrote, and why we get so disappointed and or pissed off when things go awry, well, I'm hoping you can at least relate to some a- some aspect of this, you know? The moral outrage of somebody, like, singling you out on national TV and saying, fuck you, buddy, you know? So, anyway, hopefully you, you know, you can at least, you know, even if you don't necessarily ag- agree with, you know, my political outlook or if you don't agree with just this... A probably stupid, you know, crusade that I'm on, you can at least understand where I'm coming from with this, that, you know, the only way I could be this offended by what he said is if, obviously, I was a fan of the man in the first place. So, anyway, so hopefully that all makes sense. And I think that's just about all the uh, feedback that I've got time for. There's some other things I could sort through here, but honestly, I think we're actually starting to run up against the clock here. So, just like to, um, first of all, thank both Fanboyimus Prime and Tom Panarese both uh, for uh, taking the time to uh, send in some feedback to me. You know, really appreciate that. And all of you are welcome to uh, send me feedback. You can reach me at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. All is one word. Trentus Magnus, and um, anything that you send to me, unless you say otherwise, is going to be read on mic. And uh, but you don't have to send it over as text if you don't want to. If you'd rather actually record something and send it over to me uh, in some type of audio format, like a wave file or an MP3 file or what have you, PQ River did that uh, a few episodes back. So you know you guys are welcome to do the same if you'd like. So. As to next week, I'm not completely sure what I'm going to be talking about just yet. I've got 
plans for it, but I'm just not sure if it's actually going to work out just yet. So for right now, <clears throat> it is going to remain a mystery. So, but it is, uh, if things work out the way that my little schedule here calls for, basically what I've got planned, then uh, I'm hoping you're really going to like it. So we'll see. Otherwise, I think that's just about it this week. So um, bye, everybody. I'll see you next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2 True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsecor of Milan, Italy.